Hello, and welcome to When They Popped. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Mary. Well, Mare, it's almost Valentine's Day, so this week we want to celebrate some of our favorite rom-coms with one reigning rom-com queen, Cameron Diaz. So, Mary, I hear that you're not a big fan of rom-coms. Can you please expand <laughs> on that for the class? I know. It's so weird. I just feel like some of them are so cliche, and I just have like a hard time like buying into the kind of the facade of it all. I don't know. Or maybe I'm just kind of like been jaded for too long and I'm just a little cynical. Yes. <laughs> I have one that I will watch on repeat. It's a rom-com I'm willing to die for. And it's <gasps> not super unique or special. So like everybody else probably is feels it the notebook. Like, no. What a rom-com. What am I saying? What S- is it? Sleepless. Sleepless in Seattle. Mm-hmm. That's the okay. only one that does it for me. I don't know why, but I like rom-coms. I'm not here to say I hate rom-coms. We're doing a rom-com episode, but I just prefer different genres. Well, maybe I can sway you into liking some of my favorite Cameron Diaz movies because we're going to talk about her today yeah. because she's undisputably the rom-com queen of Y2K. I think we can all agree, right? I mean, is there anyone else? Like Julia? J-Lo. Julia, yes. We'll get to her. <laughs> Julia, Julia Roberts, Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore. That's like the yeah. holy trinity of the early 2000s. J-Lo sprinkled in here. And J-Lo there. sprinkled in here being a wedding planner or something. <gasps> She's a maid. Always, always a, a maid in Manhattan. <laughs> I feel like Julia was maybe like the mid-90s and then okay. Cameron sort of took the baton and then Drew took that baton. And, you know, it's just been one big fat pay it forward of the rom-com queens. Well, let's talk about Cameron. So her films have grossed over $3 billion in the U.S., making her the fifth highest grossing actress at the U.S. box office. Get it, girly. She has been nominated for Golden Globe Awards. She was named the highest paid actress in Hollywood over 40 in 2013, according to The Hollywood Reporter, which I feel like in itself is such a huge accomplishment because Hollywood likes to throw away women after they get one wrinkle at age 32. But above all, she just seems like a genuinely delightful human with that 1,000 watt smile. So let's talk about Cameron, when she popped, and our favorite Cam rom-coms. So before we get into it, here's a disclaimer that we do not own or claim to own the rights to the songs or performances in this episode. And the purpose of these incredible, hilarious, delightful clips is for commentary and critique, especially by Mary, who doesn't like rom-coms. <laughs> Not so let's, let's, who doesn't like any rom-coms except Bawan? So let's talk about Cameron and her road to popping. Just really quick, some background on her. She was born in California, of course, a California girl, mm. raised in Long Beach. And while Cameron was in high school where she was classmates with Snoop Dogg, by the way, she signed a modeling contract with Elite Models. Is anybody surprised? And she was in ads for Calvin Klein, Levi's. And when she was only 17 years old, she was on the 1990 July issue of Seventeen magazine wow. back when it was like models on the cover. Damn. I probably had like an old version of that magazine laying around somewhere in my house. <laughs> Well, listen to this. In 1992, at age 19, she was photographed and videotaped topless for an S&M leather fashion lingerie editorial. (laughs) S-S-N-M. By this guy named Jason Rudder, who's a professional photographer. And these photos were never released. But apparently in 2003, ahead of the second Charlie's Angels movie, Full Throttle, this guy approached her and was like, hey, I'll sell you back the photos and video for $3.5 million. Wow. Or I'm just going to sell it off to somebody else. Like I'm giving you this like first right of refusal. And she was like, bro, not you blackmailing me at my movie (laughs) premiere. And she sued him. Wait, she did it at the movie premiere? He did it at the movie premiere. Oh, my God. So it's probably like the only place where he could like intercept her because she was a huge star by that point. So apparently in 2004, there was like a 30 minute video from the photo shoot. 
titled She's No Angel, which was released on some like Russian website. John denied ever releasing it, but he was sentenced to more than three years in prison for attempted grand theft, forgery, and perjury. Damn. I never heard about that. Me neither. I feel like it was, I mean, Wikipedia had it on there. So hopefully it's right. Allegedly. <laughs> it's alleged. But I mean, I just feel like that goes to show how even amazing bright stars like Cameron, when they're young, they can get taken advantage of. And this guy just saw, you know, a big payday in his future. And I love that she was like, hell no. You can tell she doesn't take shit. She does not take shit. So that all happened when she was 19, this like photo shoot. Well, just two years later, that's when she popped. She made her film debut at age 21 opposite Jim Carrey in The Mask, which came out in 1994. Get this. She had no acting experience. She only started acting lessons after she was cast. <laughs> and then The Mask goes on to become the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. For her first movie, where she plays like a major role, that's not too shabby. So after The Mask, she starred in a few other smaller films, but she made her return to like mainstream movies in 1997. And this next role is arguably my favorite performance of hers of all time. So we're going to talk about our favorite cam rom-coms now. Transitioning into My Best Friend's Wedding, which came out in 1997. Oh, this mm. movie means so much to me. June 20, 1997. June 20 is my husband's birthday. Fate! Fate. Oh. This movie is a Gemini. Mm. The movie grossed $127 million. And let's talk about those opening credits. The bride getting ready with her three maids in these poofy dresses against that pink background, that like 90s mm-hmm. dusty ass pink. Everyone had like a comforter that color or like mm-hmm. the drapes in your room were that color with like little roses on it. This is when we get that iconic song, wishing and hoping and thinking mm-hmm. and praying. Wishing and hoping and thinking and praying. I wanted my whole wedding to look exactly like the opening credits of this movie. I wanted the woman's hair. I wanted everything the exact same. I also think I wanted to marry a man named Michael one day because of this movie. And I certainly manifested it. Oh my God. Incredible. Let's talk about this cast because it's a dream. Obviously, we have Cameron Diaz, Julia Roberts, rom-com queen, number two, Mm -hmm. Dermot Mulroney, major crush who did mm-hmm. not have a crush on Dermot Mulroney in the year 1997 show me somebody mm-hmm. who says they didn't and I'll show you a liar and then we get Rupert Everett so we also <sighs> have some fun cameos from Paul Giamatti and smaller roles from Chris Masterson did you ever watch Malcolm in the Middle he played like the oldest yeah. brother we also get some amazing scenes with Philip Bosco, who played Vincenzo in It Takes Two with Mary-Kate and Ashley. In My Best Friend's Wedding, Philip played the billionaire father of the bride, so Cameron Diaz's character's dad. And I just maintain that this guy has one of the best voices ever. Yeah. R.I.P. I love him so much. So in case you need a refresher of the plot, I'm going to go through <laughs> this movie. And I'll try to keep it brief, but no promises because, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it. So. Here we are. Three weeks before her 28th birthday, New York City-based food critic Julianne Potter receives a call from her lifelong friend and ex-boyfriend, Michael O'Neill, and he's a Chicago-based sports writer. Let's just avoid the fact that she's a 27-year-old food critic on a book tour. We all know that there's some unrealistic jobs in these movies. (laughs) So years earlier, while they were in college, Jules and Michael had one hot month and they made a pact that if they were unmarried by age 28, they would marry each other. That yeah. made me laugh. 28. What that singing? 28 being played by a bunch of 30 somethings. So Jules gets this urgent call from Michael in the lead up to this milestone birthday. And she's like, oh, my God, like maybe it has to do with this pact. Well, no. Michael tells her that he met someone and she's the daughter of a billionaire and that in four days he will marry her. Then we're introduced to Kimberly Wallace, a 20 year old college student. And yes, her father owns the Chicago White Sox. So this is Cameron Diaz's character. So before we proceed, I just want to go on a quick detour here to again acknowledge how effed up the ages in this movie are. Kimmy is going to be a senior in college and she's going to drop out because, again, she's only 20. 
but I remember watching this movie and being like, wow, 20 is so old. Like I would totally drop out of college to get married. People were like, what, six when this came out? Yeah, right. Everybody just seems so much older in this movie, though. And I thought, okay, maybe it's that phenomenon where people from other decades just look older because of like the styling and such. But after some deliberation, I've decided that no, the ages in this movie are just incorrect. This was a misstep. And there's a hilarious BuzzFeed article that totally agrees. It's called The Ages in My Best Friend's Wedding Are Seriously Messed Up. (laughs) Couldn't have said it better myself. They said in this article, basically, if you're a single 20-something, you better make your marriage packed now or be doomed to cradle rob at the nearest community college ASAP. <laughs> LOL. That's how it feels being a 30-something watching this movie. Okay. Detour over. Back to our plot. So, Jules thinks Michael is about to be like, you're 28, I'm 28, let's do what we promised to do and get hitched. But she is so surprised that Michael is instead getting married to 20-year-old Cameron Diaz, Kimberly Wallace, that she falls off the bed in her hotel room and has to drop everything to go to Chicago because it's Wednesday and the wedding is on Sunday. She's all, I need to break up a wedding and steal the bride's fell in four days. This timeline seems crazy, right? Like, if Michael is her best friend, why is Jules only just finding out about Kimmy in general? And why are they getting married so freaking fast? And Like, is she about to have a baby? Well, apparently Michael just couldn't get in touch with Jules, quote, for like a month. Because her, (laughs) quote, machine eats all her messages. So basically, this movie could just never be reproduced in today's day and age because the Kimmy reveal would be like one soft launch Instagram story away. Right. Anyways, Jules arrives in Chicago. She reunites with Michael and we're introduced to sweet candy coated Kimmy. She is pushing her little Birkin bag in one of those giant luggage carts while (laughs) Julianne lugs all her bags on her shoulders. And it's just such a great representation of how opposite that they are positioning these two women throughout the movie. Kimmy just couldn't be more opposite of Julianne. And I love how they styled her to accentuate the differences even more. Again, Julianne's supposed to be this fiercely independent, like, NYC girly. So her color palette is darker. We see her wearing a lot of menswear inspired looks like long pants, a gray suit and her signature red curls just like all unwieldy but still looking perfect. Meanwhile, Kimmy is wearing these bright single color pastel shift dresses and silk Hermes scarves and delicate cardigans. Her hair is straight and smoothed back with a beautiful pin or like a gorgeous headband. And the only time that we see Julianne in like a real color is when she's trying on her maid of honor dress. And it is this shittiest (laughs) lavender color. (laughs) Everyone knows the one. So they meet the two women, the bride and the girl she'll never live up to, as her cousins say. My God, it's the bride and the woman she'll never live up to. <laughs> and Kimmy immediately asks Jules to be her maid of honor because her bestie hurt her hip during spring break. Because again, we're reminded Kimmy is 20 years old and still in college. And didn't have anyone else to ask. Well, you know what they say. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Mm. We'll get there. So unbeknownst to Kimmy, Jules is immediately trying to break them up, like immediately while they're running these wedding errands. Mm. Again, watching it now, it's very messed up that Kimmy was just like, yeah, I'm just going to drop out of school. But also, why are they only getting their dresses and suits done like the day before the (laughs) wedding? Like Michael doesn't have a tux yet. And I know that Kimmy's really rich and stuff, but like, I just don't understand what's the rush. And why does Jules find out on a Wednesday? The wedding has a Sunday. I just... There's a lot here to unpack. A lot of holes. That's okay. So no matter how hard she tries to sabotage and show how wrong Kimmy is for Michael, Jules's attempts to break up the wedding just continue to fail. And one of those most memorable scenes is when Jules tries to humiliate Kimmy at a karaoke bar. We find out that Kimmy hates karaoke bars when she's playfully making fun of Michael for liking them. She's They're in the, the elevator going to some brunch and she's like, he likes karaoke bars for God's sake. He'll it's karaoke bars for God's sakes. And I can't carry it to Really? And when I was little, I didn't know what a karaoke bar was. I actually thought it was a candy bar that Kimmy <laughs> just thought was gross. So I was like, oh, gross. I hate karaoke bars too. <laughs> <laughs> What else would it be, right? At six years old, what else right. would you think that is? <laughs> like, is it like a Snickers? I don't know. Yeah. So we get the most incredible karaoke scene, Kimmy singing loudly. You can tell she's just dying. She is so embarrassed. Here's a clip of that really embarrassing first karaoke stint. I'm so used to doing everything. 
Well, Michael loved it. Everyone loved it. No one can hate Kimmy. And it's starting to dawn on Jules that this is going to be a lot harder than she thought. Another standout moment in this movie that is also related to song is when they all join together at the rehearsal lunch. So leading up to this moment, Jules is just desperate. She begs her friend and her editor, George, to help her scheme and support her while she tries to break up her best friend's engagement. So George, Rupert's character, flies to Chicago. And George is like, Jules, just tell Michael that you love him. Like, just tell him. I know it sucks. He's not going to pick you. He's going to want to marry Kimmy. But you just got to get it off your chest and say goodbye. Let it go. But instead, Jules tells Michael that she's actually engaged to George to make Michael jealous. Well, George is very gay, but he plays along. And so to embarrass Jules at lunch in front of the entire wedding party, including Kimmy's like entire family, he starts singing, I say a little prayer for you as the whole restaurant joins in complete with dancing lobsters. And mm-hmm. I just have to wonder, was this maybe inspiration for the Amanda show? I was just going to say, is this what cute little dancing lobsters comes from? Bring in the dancing lobsters. Bring in the dancing lobsters. I mean, maybe. This was a pivotal moment in the movie. I mean, who doesn't love a musical number in the middle of a rom-com? Right. Probably you, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) I love musicals. So uh, we're getting somewhere. (laughs) Well, this just gave me the unrealistic expectation that everyone would break out into song during my rehearsal dinner. And I wanted very badly for this to happen. And it did not. And if my sister is listening to this right now, please know that I hold you and you alone responsible for this Mm -hmm. missed opportunity. Moving on. So eventually Julianne figures out how to get Michael to call off the wedding. Kind of. She devises an evil plan to send a fake email from Walt, billionaire Kimmy's dad's email, basically asking Michael's boss to fire Michael so that Michael doesn't have to travel for his shitty little sports writing job and Michael can take a job with the White Sox, aka for Walt, Kimmy's dad, so Kimmy doesn't have to drop out of school and she can be home in Chicago. So Michael gets this email. He flips out. He calls Kimmy. He's like, how could you do this to me? I'm not good enough for you. She denies it. She has no idea what's going on. Walt denies it. And Michael's like, She is in denial. She swears up and down it wasn't her, but I just can't go through with this wedding. But then it's the day of the wedding, and suddenly Michael's had a change of heart, and he's trying to reconcile with Kimmy. And Jules is this weird middle mediator devil character Mm -hmm. going back and forth between Michael and Kimmy trying to negotiate keeping this wedding on the track. So here's where we get what I argue is the most quotable quote of the entire movie. So Kimmy doesn't understand why Michael would try to throw off the wedding. And Julianne's like, maybe he is creating a diversion. Like, you know that you didn't write this email and your dad didn't write this email. So maybe Michael just knows that this wedding isn't right for him. So he's trying to create some delusion. And Kimmy's like, huh? And Julianne uses a food analogy instead to explain it. Because again, she's a 27-year-old food critic. So she's like, Michael wants something comfortable. Like, you're just too perfect, and he wants a less perfect version. So we're introduced to what I have dubbed the Jello analogy. Jules tells Kimmy that she is creme brulee. It's sweet. It's irritatingly perfect. But Michael doesn't want creme brulee. He wants something comfortable. He wants Jello. And Kimmy's like, Jello? And Jules is like, Jello. And Kimmy's like, I can be Jello. And Jules is like, no, creme brulee can never be Jello. And Kimmy's like, I have to be Jello. And Jules is like, you're never going to be Jello. I could be Jello. Creme brulee can never be Jello. You could never be Jello. You have to be Jello. You're never going to be Jello. Once again, I just want to call out the costuming in this scene because Kimmy is in what I can only describe as the most Jello inspired outfit mm-hmm. I've ever seen in this like adorable bright green shift dress. I mean, when you think of Jello, it's green Jello, right? Yes, so, green or red, green or red, green or red, right? But yes. green was right for her. So then we get past the analogy. Jules goes back to Michael to tell him that. Okay, Kimmy wants to marry you. But also, um, she finally musters up the courage to express her undying love for him. Now, a lot of people like to quote Grey's Anatomy with the best love line of television, that iconic pick me, choose me, love me line. So pick me, 
Choose me. Love me. Well, guess what? That's a big old ripoff from Julianne's confession to Michael in the pergola on Walt's grounds the day <laughs> of the wedding. She tells Michael, choose me, marry me, let me make you happy. Choose me, marry me, let me make you happy. Uh, sorry, Ellen Pompeo, but this is Julia Roberts' legacy to uphold. You're just a what? dupe. So then Julianne lays a big wet one on Michael. They're kissing. Kimmy sees. Then we get a wild goose chase. Michael's chasing Kimmy and Jews is chasing Michael. And finally, Julianne catches Michael. She admits to all of her scheming. She finds Kimmy in a public bathroom <laughs> and apologizes to her. Frankly, you know, if I was a billionaire, that would be the last place anybody would find me, you know, in a public bathroom. So A plus hiding spot, Kimmy. <laughs> We get this pivotal moment when Kimmy finally confronts Julianne and she's like, I love this man and there's no way I'm going to give it up to some two-faced, big-haired food critic. No, I love this man and there's no way that I'm going to give him up to some two-faced, big-haired food critic. <laughs> and she said it with such disdain. Again, Cameron's acting is so, first the karaoke bars, now the food critic. I thought that food critic was like a bad word when I was a little kid watching this for the first time. So if you don't like someone, just call them a food <laughs> critic next time. <laughs> Anyways, everybody makes up. The wedding proceeds at the reception. Jules gives this wonderful, heartfelt speech. She says goodbye to her Michael. She dances the night away with George, her editor, who aptly points out that if Jules wasn't so busy scheming to break up a marriage she would have had time to get a manicure <laughs> and it's those little moments that like i really love it i mean cameron just absolutely crushed this role the whole essence of kimmy is that she's supposed to be irritatingly perfect and as jules describes her except there's nothing irritating about her perfection i would adore her if i didn't hate her and that mm -hmm. is annoying i just feel like that's exactly who Kimmy was. She Cam just nailed it. Her indefectious laugh is all over this movie. But so are those big fat tears that just feel so honest and just as dramatic as a 20 year old would be. It felt a little familiar for me, at least. Hmm. So, Mary, I have to know, were you rooting for Jules or Kimmy? So, first of all, I rewatched this one. It had been a long time, but it reminded me why rom-coms like stress me out because it's like if they just talk to each other instead of like playing these games and one's playing one game the other one's doing another game and then they're like just missing each other by chance or like not saying what's on their mind it gives me like so much anxiety and that's why I think I struggle with rom-coms partially but like okay so I naturally feel like I would root for the Julia Roberts character. Not in this case, but like, you know, she's getting her man back from the rich girl, you know, like the old friend. Like, I feel like that's like a classic plot in its own right. But again, it's so special here because Kimmy is so likable because usually it's like a Meredith Blake type character. You know, she's so easy to hate. He doesn't belong with her. Like he needs to be with his best friend from college of 20 years. So for this one, it was really a no brainer, but it like stressed me out because I was like cheering for both of them at one point or another, but ultimately it's Kimmy. But like, just a side note, I would be freaking pissed though if I was Kimmy and my fiance was like acting like he was with Julianne. I've seen you a lot more naked than that. Oh, and just, like, murder! And, like, they're like talking and like totally ignoring her and doing all these like, it's like, hey, beautiful. Hey, gorgeous. Like to Julianne, I'm like, um, excuse me. Excuse me. So who's the real villain in this movie? Okay. <laughs> it's Michael. Yes. <sighs> You're right. I mean, the whole movie, I'm like half rooting for Jules because it's like, oh, my God, true love. I agree. Go get your mans. But then yeah. Kimmy doesn't deserve that. And she is very honest and vulnerable. And that's what right. Michael wanted. Jules wasn't the right person for him. So I think that's what made it so compelling because you wanted both of them to win. It wasn't like a clear. Yes, because usually it is clear. And I think that's why this movie is unique, because it's like, oh, there's not one obvious winner. You're so right. <laughs> the real winner is us because we get to watch... Michael the entire time and I just have <laughs> such a big fat crush on him. So let's talk about what the critics thought. Well, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone called it, quote, the summer date film supreme for pretty women and the gay men they love. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't just sum it up, I mean, who can resist Julia Roberts' laugh? Who can resist Cameron Diaz's laugh? They could break world peace if we just let them to be in charge for once. <laughs> 
The most important critic to me is my husband, my Michael, and his official review is that this movie is actually funny. <laughs> and that's, wow. a, that's a direct quote. <laughs> the highest of compliments. And this movie did win some awards. Cameron won an Alma Award, which is the American Latino Media Arts Awards. They were formerly known as the Latin Oscars. I didn't realize this before, but Cameron's dad was a second generation Cuban American. So that was kind of cool to find out. The movie was nominated for a Golden Globe and even an Oscar for Best Original Musical or Comedy Score. So I just love that so much. And in 2019, Entertainment Weekly reunited the cast for their romantic comedy issue. It got a ton of buzz. Cameron Diaz is wearing the most incredible pink voluminous dress. You have to Google it. And Cameron was joking that, oh yeah, you know, I was going to turn down the role. Just kidding. Like I got to work with Julia Roberts. Like this was like a huge break for me. And she even divulged to the magazine that her sister-in-law, who is Nicole Richie, by the way, is obsessed with my best friend's wedding. And she said, quote, we went to Chicago like a year and a half ago, and she took me to every single location. She's like, remember when you were walking down the street right here? And then it was so much fun. I was like, yes, I think I do. And she's like, I do. And it really matters a lot to me. So I would like for you to pretend like you do. (laughs) I can hear Nicole saying that. That's so funny. (laughs) Imagine though, just like being in Chicago with Cameron Diaz, I think I would faint. In our dreams. In our dreams. All right. Well, the movie that I want to talk about next is a no-brainer, not only because of its quality, but because my name is in it. And when you're a kid, if something has your name in it, like you kind of own it. It's kind of like yours, you know? Like you're that. I wouldn't know because nothing (laughs) is ever named Kelsey. Uh, I'd swim the ocean for you. And I'll swim the ocean for you. The ocean for you. Whoa, okay, that one metro station song. It <laughs> was a good song. And the, <laughs> now, the movie is There's Something About Mary, which came out in 1998. So just a year after My Best Friend's Wedding. This movie was obviously just like a staple in rom-com-dom. But it also gave Cameron her first Golden Globe nomination, like for her as an actress, which is a huge deal. So let's talk through the plot of this one. It opens up with 16 year old high school student Ted Stroman, aka Ben Stiller. And he's about to go on a prom date with his dream girl, Mary Jensen, aka Cameron. Are you laughing? I'm laughing because I rewatched it last night and it's so funny. It's so funny. It's before Ben has gotten his teeth done. I like couldn't believe. Everyone has original teeth. That yes, is what I, sticks out to me about these I was movies. Like, There's no, oh they're God. not a veneer in sight. Not a veneer in sight. So Mary asks Ted to prom after he kind of helped stand up for her disabled brother, Warren, while Warren was getting bullied. So one thing leads to another. And he's going to go to prom with basically his dream girl, probably the dream girl of the high school. She's like literally glowing and effervescent, like radiating in this movie. So he gets to go to prom with her. So he goes to her house and this is when we get the scene where right before they're about to leave, poor, poor, poor Ted gets a part of his member stuck in his pants zipper, if you get what I'm saying. So that is a scene that I have to watch through my hands because it's just like so painful and cringe and it's actually based on a real life experience the farley brothers revealed that this happened to one of their friends growing up (sighs) okay i think about this scene all the time because it's just one of those things that really sticks with you you know yes (laughs) just like not wear underwear like how would that happen that's a good question he must have been free balling i always think of the cop going all right i'm just gonna rip it and a one and a two. <laughs> and like before I do anything hard, I'm like, and a one. <laughs> it's literally like a cop, the EMTs, both of Mary's parents are in there. They're like, oh, come look, come look. Like the firefighters, like, I heard a lady scream. And of course, it's Ted screaming. Like, They're like popping their head through the back yes, window. Yes. Like, it's very quirky, funny. Yes, Farley Brother comedy. And so Ted is hospitalized, causing him to miss prom with Mary. And of course, she ends up moving away. They just never really see each other after that. And Mary and her family move off to Miami. So flash forward 13 years later, 
Ted is a magazine writer and guess what? Still in love with Mary. And on the vice of his best friend, Dom, who's played by, I don't remember his actor name, but it's Roland from Schitt's Creek. Ted hires a private investigator named Pat Healy, aka Matt Dillon, to track Mary down. What's she been up to? What is Mary's status? Because he's still pining over her. So Detective Pat discovers that Mary is a thriving, gorgeous orthopedic surgeon living in Miami. And Detective Pat is spending some time like observing, spying on Mary, and he ends up becoming quite fixated on her as well. And how could you not? Again, as I said, Cameron is legit glowing in this movie. She's gorgeous. So Detective Pat is also in to Mary. So he returns to Providence where Ted is based. And he's like, you know what? Mary is, she's two tons. Like he literally was like, she's a whale. She has four kids by three different men. Oh, she's actually in a a wheelchair. She's a mail order bride. She's heading off to Japan. They pay by the pound there, like literally just trying to discourage Ted for having any interest in Mary. But Pat quits his job and moves down to Miami to pursue Mary full throttle. And he does it by using the information he's kind of gotten from Ted over the last couple of months to like get in with her. Like he knows inside stuff about her and that makes her like him, you know, like they have similar interests. He's an architect. He's been to Nepal. I thought about you when I was rewatching that. Oh my God. Yes. I was like, I wonder if I've seen any of his buildings. (laughs) So Ted is understandably a little suspicious because Pat just said all these terrible things about Mary, packed up, left his job and moved to Miami. So he's like, hmm. So he's like, I'm going to go to Florida and see this for myself. I think he's lying. And we get a little plot detour here. Ted's driving down to Miami. He picks up a hitchhiker who happens to leave a dead body in his car. And then, of course, Ted is mistakenly arrested for the murder. But while this is going on, the side plot, Pat and Mary are getting closer and spending time together dating before her British architect friend, Tucker, exposes that Pat is a liar. Not just a liar, but like he is a murderer. He's not an architect, blah, blah, blah. So Pat is like, has a listening device. He's been like spying on Mary. He hears all of this and confronts Tucker, who was actually lying to Mary himself. Two for two and the liars here. Tucker, instead of being this like prestigious British architect, he's just an American pizza delivery boy named Norm, who's also just obsessed with Mary. So they're off squabbling, you know, Pat and Norm are fighting each other over each other's lies. But Ted finally arrives. Ben Stiller's character finally makes it down to Miami. He's cleared of the murder charges and meets up with Mary. And so that's when Pat and Norm, who was formerly Tucker, they decide they need to team up instead of go against one another and drive Ted away. Then Mary gets an anonymous letter and it reveals to her that Ted, a.k.a. Ben Stiller, actually hired Pat, a.k.a. Matt Dillon, to find her. And she's upset about that and kicks Ted's ass to the curb. So then Ted is, like, pissed, and he confronts Pat and Norm, who deny sending this letter. And he's like, hmm, so who would have sent the letter? And plot twist, it's Ted's friend, Dom, who's been getting hives this entire movie. That's like one thing I'm just like, that is almost (laughs) hard to look at because he keeps getting worse hives the entire movie. And it's revealed later on that he's Mary's ex-boyfriend, Woogie. He was mentioned in passing as like a bad ex. (laughs) What is making you laugh? The hives are so gross. And the fact that his name is Woogie and these disgusting hives, it's just too much. Oh my God. And Mary had like restraining order against him and he just is like an obsessive stalker. But yeah, the That's hives. Not funny, but the hives. no, the hives were hard to look at. Um, <laughs> so disgusting. Oh God. But <laughs> plot twist of all plot twists. <laughs> Another plot twist. Another former boyfriend shows up because, understandably, Mary has dated like crazy. She can date whoever she wants. She's there's something about boyfriend. her. 
there's something about her. So we get another boyfriend showing up, and that happens to be Brett Favre, who at the time was, I would say, a pretty big deal, had a pretty good image and reputation, unlike now. So, like, a pretty big get. Wait, people don't like him anymore? Wasn't he? He sent, like, dick pics and stuff when he was married. Yeah. He had, like, a whole fall from grace, but maybe he's redeemed. I can't keep track of who's redeemed themselves or not, but Mary had dated Brett Favre, but she had dumped him because Norm, a.k.a. Tucker, had, of course, made up a lie about him saying that Brett had insulted Warren. And if you know anything about Mary, that's like an absolute no-no. So his ass was kicked to the curb. So because it's not Mary's decision, it's one of the man's decisions, I get apparently, Ted declares that Brett should be the one who gets to be with Mary because he is the only one that did not use deception to win her over. And Mary seemed to accept this decision that Ben Stiller made for her. (laughs) So all the other guys leave, you know, Ben, a.k.a. Ted, is basically in tears. But this is a rom-com after all. And Mary changes her mind and chases Ted down and says, I'd be happiest with you before they kiss and seemingly live happily ever after. Seemingly cries. He's like, <laughs> like he is weeping. He's full on boohooing. Yes. That was an attempt at sarcasm. Oh. <laughs> seemingly should Right over him. my head. Well, that plot twist actually really surprised me because the whole movie, everyone's like, Brett was so perfect. What happened when she's gabbing with her girlfriends, one of them being Sarah Silverman, which yes. I was like, holy shit, I forgot she was in this well when he like allegedly said something they're all like the only thing that he did wrong was say something mean about warren which we all know mm-hmm. didn't mm-hmm. happen but if he was so perfect why did she choose ted over brett well i finally learned the answer because i actually listened you know that little musical trio that's playing in between scenes i don't get them either there's something yeah. about mary but there's something about mary Well, that little group, they said right as Ted was walking away and boohooing that Brett didn't challenge Mary enough. Well, she's back with her old boyfriend. He don't challenge her. He don't contend with her. So like they they sort of filled in a lot of the holes. They were sort of like the narrator, the muses in Hercules, if you will. That's like one of the weirdest parts of the movie to me, I feel like. It's like this little trio that we get as like kind of a segue between scenes. But there you go. They're giving us facts that we needed. But let's talk about this film a little bit. As I said, this was written and directed by the Farley brothers. And while they wrote it with Cameron in mind, they admitted later that Courtney Cox almost got the part as she made a massive impression on them during auditions. In fact, Peter Farley said in an interview that he offered Courtney the role of Mary and she verbally accepted. But due to her filming friends at the time, her agent actually officially turned it down on her behalf without her knowledge. So, (gasps) like, fired. Well, they probably had to. She probably was in breach of her ABC contract or whatever Friends was on. But they ultimately went with Cameron then, which is not a bad like plan B, especially when that was your muse for the role anyway. And they said, quote, what I've been saying all along, she just had that glow. And again, holy shit, glow she had during this era. Ben Stiller played Ted, and they were just such an iconic pairing. However, Ben was not a shoo-in for this role, as apparently John Stewart first turned it down, and Owen Wilson was also up for consideration i definitely could see owen wilson and playing that part i feel like he wouldn't be nerdy enough though in the beginning do you think he has like more of like a heartthrob reputation okay okay they were in zoolander together that's wild oh yeah they i feel like they are in, they were in meet the parents they did i feel like a lot together but i also talk about that iconic brett Favre cameo Again, just like other roles, Brett was not the first pick in this as the Farley brothers were huge Patriots fans and Uh originally had secured the starting quarterback at the time, the one that Brady replaced, (laughs) Drew Bledsoe, to play that role. But apparently Drew, quote, hurt his neck after diving into a mosh pit 
in the club and it's club, but I changed it to club, but end quote. And he couldn't make the trip to Miami to film like LOL. What? Bill Belichick. What was Drew Bledsoe doing at a mosh pit in the club? AKA that's us in Cancun. Oh my God. Let's bring neck braces. So Drew was out, dreams shattered. So they tried to get another quarterback, Steve Young, to step in. I had never heard of him. But Steve, a Mormon, had reservations about corrupting the Mormon youth with this role. And he declined. He told the Farley brothers that, quote, that's the funniest script I've ever read, but I cannot do it because if I do, it's R-rated. And I know that all the Mormon kids will be sneaking in and I wouldn't feel good about that, end quote. And that's how they landed on Brett, the third choice. (laughs) So after filming Wrapped, we got the tea that Cam briefly dated co-star Matt Dillon. Besides Matt, Vince Vaughn, which I can see, Cuba Gooding Jr., okay, and Bill Murray, what, were considered to fill this role. What? Uh, I know. Bill Murray would have been too old, but just bizarre. Side note, on Cam and Matt's relationship, it was very brief that they dated, but Matt was quoted saying at the time of their split, quote, I was dissatisfied with where I was as a man, with my relationships, with my career. I thought my career was who I was. It wasn't until later that I discovered I was more than that. Cameron was a muse for me, end quote. Inspiring queen. Of course she's a muse. So... Something I like about the movie is Build Me Up Buttercup with like the ending credits. It's just super cute and heartwarming. It kind of gives you a look behind the scenes, the blooper. Like it's not like bloopers, but you know, it's just like a funny look behind the curtain. Uh, apparently they used to play it on set every day at the end of filming. And so they used it for credits at the end of the movie. I love that so much. I feel like movies don't have fun credits like that anymore. And Cam is the queen of like the best movie credits. And we'll talk through another example in a little bit. I can't wait. Let's talk stats. Something About Mary was the fourth highest grossing film of 1998. It came in only behind Titanic. Saving Private Ryan and Armageddon, it made $369 million on a budget of $23 million. That is not too shabby. No, it ain't. And what a crazy year for movies. I love that a rom-com made the top. Something fun I learned about the impact of this film, when Something About Mary came out in 1998, most comedies were PG-13, you know, like, and... The Farley brothers had enough of it. They set out to make like a raunchy rom-com. They wanted to bring R-rated comedies back. Bobby Farley told the LA Times, quote, there hadn't been an R-rated comedy in a long time. We wanted to do something more for adults. We weren't going to hold back. Animal House was a movie we loved growing up. The jokes those guys were willing to attempt is what motivated us, end quote. And... The next year after There's Something About Mary is when we got American Pie, followed by countless R-rated comedies of the early 2000s. So like this movie was truly trend-setting. This movie, as I said, has always been super special to me, despite it being a (laughs) rom-com. Not only because it's a good movie, but when you're a kid and your name is in the title of anything, it basically... It's a part of you now. (laughs) But even as an adult, I love looking back at it because it's filmed in Miami. Like, I've been in this area since 2016. It's right in the heart of Brickle, like Kelsey, where Cameron and Ben first meet is right across the street from my old apartment. And you were there. You know, you've been there too. And so, like, I love seeing Miami before it really boomed and was super developed like it's just nice getting a glimpse of the past through this when there were trees yes like (laughs) houses yes (laughs) it was really cool i agree love that about the movie i do think that it didn't age particularly well compared to some of these other cameron diaz movies that we're talking about today you know just the fact that literally everybody is stalking mary and there's obviously some really cheap shots at warren who's neurodivergent there's use of the r word even though it's acknowledged in the movie that it's not okay, but 
aside from that, there are actually funny parts that do hold up, like when Ted mm. unwittingly admits to murder and the hair gel scene, which is probably one of the most memorable parts. I mean, everyone talks about <laughs> that. All these years later, it's just such an iconic visual. Uh, the goop on the ear. The goop! We're going to call Ooh. it goop. Yeah, it's not gel. <laughs> what is that? Hmm? On your ear. Here. No, your left ear. Is that? Is that a hair gel? Yeah. Great. Yeah, I can use no, 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 don't, don't, you don't have to. You don't. <laughs> yeah. you don't. <laughs> I just ran out. Huh. <laughs> and this won't be the first time that we reference goop in this episode. What is it about Cameron and these bodily fluids? <laughs> so i found out something super interesting about this movie too so jeffrey tambor is in this movie and when i if anyone's like an arrested development fan i um, love do you love arrested development of course there's always money in the banana stand there's always money in the banana stand oh my god i'm dying So I thought it's so funny that he's in this movie, but then it's like, it's weird. He's like in a few scenes. He like reads that script with Pat Healy when Pat knows that Mary and Magda are listening in with Magda's like phone radio that lets her eavesdrop on her neighbor's phone conversations. And then Jeffrey's character is just like sort of gone. And we get that scene where Healy and Tucker go into his apartment and it smells disgusting and it looks like it's been yeah. ransacked and that's where Ted intercepts him and they all fight. It doesn't make sense. Like, why are they breaking into his apartment? Like, why does it smell so bad? Well, apparently there's a deleted scene that explains all of this. So according to ScreenRant.com, <laughs> the deleted scene was this subplot that revealed that Sully was a Jeffrey Tambor's character, was a former cocaine addict who relapses and he's eventually eaten by his neglected pet python. <laughs> Oh my god i guess in the movie like there was this whole other side story where healy offers sully a beer even though he knew that sully was sober and then sully relapses and because of his addiction he neglects his pet python and it eventually eats him so that when healy arrives at sully's apartment with tucker and ted there they find the pet python engorged and there's like a giant human-sized lump in his stomach. So they cut that out, obviously. And that's why the meeting at Sully's apartment and the state of it just like doesn't make any sense. But I'm glad they cut it because this movie is already so insane. And I think it was just too dark for the movie. But it definitely explains one of those big holes in the movie, I feel like. Okay. Since this is an episode about Lerv, and I mean, we're going to get into Cameron Diaz's dating and love life a little bit more at the end, just where we are in the timeline right now. Something About Mary came out in 1998. And starting in about 1999, Cameron Diaz was actually in a serious long-term relationship with Jared Leto from 30 Seconds to Mars. There were even rumors that they were engaged for a period of time before calling it quit. I've heard he's like allegedly a leader of a cult. I remember nothing about this, but I just have to insert the dating tea as it comes along. I love that you do that. And that's interesting. So I guess while she was filming for this next movie that we're going to talk about, she was with Jared Leto. And by this next movie, I mean 2002's The Sweetest Thing. So this movie was a moderate commercial success, but it is definitely a cult. Speaking of cults, definitely a cult classic (laughs) now. And it taught me what a glory hole is. Can't put a price tag on that now, can ya? So this one stars Cameron, Selma Blair, Christina Applegate as besties. Cam plays this woman named Christina who has guys drooling over her all the time, which sounds like every other role she's played that we've talked about today. (laughs) But she never lets them get too close to her. No, she doesn't want to be vulnerable. Well, our story really starts to pick up steam when Cam goes to a nightclub one night. Sorry. By Cam, I mean Christina. Christina (laughs) is trying to cheer up Selma Blair's character because she got dumped. Mm. By the way, they're at this nightclub and it looks like the most fun club in America because there's waterbed furniture in it. And this is what I thought all nightclubs would be like. So imagine my disappointment. I was expecting cool furniture, fun dancing. They even had open flame candles at this nightclub in the sweetest thing. Talk about unrealistic expectations. So... (laughs) 
Anyways, Christina's like, okay, Selma's character, like, you're sad. Here's a cute guy. Like, go flirt with him. Again, she's sad because she just got dumped. And this is how we meet Peter. Well, Peter isn't into it. And he reads Christina within like five minutes of knowing her. And he's like, you have a wall up. You don't want anyone to get close to you. So you don't get hurt. And Christina's like, F you. Like, you're a dick. Goodbye. But then she realizes she really likes him because he challenges her. Anywho, Peter's brother, who's played by a young Jason Bateman. Oh, my God. Love Jason Bateman. Speaking of Arrested Development. Yes. He's like, hello, hottie. You should come party with us at this hotel suite. We're in town for my bachelor party. And Christina is like, "Ugh, whatever. Like, have fun at your brother's bachelor party, Peter. But they don't exchange numbers or anything. Well, It's the next morning. Christina cannot stop thinking about Peter. She even calls the hotel suite the next day, only to be disappointed that they had already checked out. So Christina is moping around for days, and her bestie, Courtney, Christina Applegate's character, convinces her to go to Peter's brother's wedding to find (laughs) Peter. So Christina and Courtney go on a road trip for the ages to the small town where Peter's brother is getting married. They somehow know the town and the plan is just to go to like every church and find the wedding, I guess, which (laughs) just sounds very them. So they have to stop at a dingy rest stop to clean themselves after Christina finds disgusting rotting food in Courtney's car. And this is where things start to go off the handle a little bit. Christina, Cameron Diaz's character, gets a body part in her eye when she looks through a glory hole, not knowing what it was. And Courtney, meanwhile, causes the faucet to fly off the sink so the entire bathroom is flooded and the girls are blasted with gross rest stop water. I didn't know what a glory hole was when this came out. And this was the kind of movie that was like on like tv late at night i feel like and they would like skip over the part where you see the dingling <laughs> but like yep. it was like implied and i just remember having to like pretend to know what it was yeah like oh yeah yeah like ew gross gore, ew. who could not know what that is duh like i'm seven years old <laughs> like, <I don't> know. <laughs> anyways christina basically needs a new eyeball And they need to find new clothes. So they stop in this little town and they have a fun little movie montage trying all these tacky clothes in this little boutique run by this really sweet lady. They just happen to be in the town where Peter lives. They find the church nearby where the wedding is happening. And Christina unknowingly stumbles into the bride's getting ready area where she finds the bride totally hyperventilating having second thoughts about moving forward with the wedding and the bride is played by parker posey by the way we love her and josie and the pussycats i mean what a fun cast so christina's like well you know you could always get divorced if it doesn't work out to herself as somebody who doesn't want to get too close to anybody and the bride is like you're so right i look beautiful let's do this So the wedding begins and Christina and courtney walk in late to find out that the groom is not peter's brother no the groom is peter (gasps) and it was peter's bachelor party the whole time and the brother jason bateman lied to christina at the club to try to get his brother peter one last fling before the wedding ring (sighs) well christina is so shocked to see the mans that she's been dreaming of up at the altar that she ends up knocking over a flower arrangement Mm. and courtney Ever the smooth operator is like, oh, we thought that this was a bot mitzvah. <laughs> We're in the wrong place. Bye. <laughs> so Courtney and Christina commence their three and a half hour drive home to San Francisco. Meanwhile, at the wedding, the bride is still having a mental breakdown and breaks out into hives. <laughs> I guess another theme in Cameron Diaz movies. Yes. Less disgusting than Woogie from something about Mary, though. It was like a delicate hive. And the bride and Peter decide to call off the wedding at the altar. They want to stay friends. They love each other. They're just not in love anymore. So mm-hmm. no wedding takes place. But Christina and Courtney don't know this because they already left in a hurry when they were so embarrassed. So flash forward a few weeks later, Christina is reading the self-help book about like the Ten Commandments to love or whatever. And she's like, I need to let go and start trusting people and not be afraid. So she tries to meet people at the club, but it's not really working out. Then she comes home one night from a disappointing night out to find Peter sleeping on her doorstep. Ooh. And do you know how he found Christina? Well, he found her because that little tacky boutique where they did their little montage after the truck stop incident, 
Christina signed up for the mailing list at the boutique. And it, well, it was technically Courtney who wrote her name down. She's like, Christina loves Peter. And this was back in the day when mailing lists meant writing your actual physical address to get actual physical <laughs> mail, not an email address. I love it. So Peter saw her name in the book. He finds her address. Anyways, they kiss, they fall in love. They all live happily ever after. And there's even hints that Selma Blair's character dates Jason Bateman. So while this movie is a rom-com, yes, it's about the pursuit of love, blah, blah, blah. But to me, the message of this movie is about the power of female friendships. Because, like, we don't really know Peter that well. We meet him once at a club, but we do see the links that Courtney, Christina Applegate's character, goes to help Christina find out what it could be. Mm-hmm. And I just love how silly the girls are with one another. They playfully make fun of each other. Selma Blair's character gets a certain stain on a borrowed dress. Mm. Again, bodily fluids are a common theme <laughs> in Cameron Diaz movies. And we see her. Wait, it's actually so funny in the scene. She brings it to her, like her local laundromat, and the guy is like smelling it and tasting it. And then her elementary school teacher comes in with a bunch of kids for like a career day type field trip. And then while she's sitting there, like mortified out of her mind, while the laundromat guy is still like, What is this? This is such an interesting color. (laughs) Her priest comes in. (laughs) Like, it's just very similar of like a something about Mary type humor. It's very crazy, but fun. They also call Jane at work, Selma Blair's character, because their favorite song comes on the radio when they're on their road trip. And they're like, hello, is Jane there? (laughs) And they just have this really funny way of speaking with one another. Instead of saying cheers, like, cheers. Like they just have these little amazing moments of chemistry that just feels so relatable to me. And like, it just made me really miss my roommates from college. Uh, all these movies, bodily fluids, yes. And getting someone to call off their wedding. Am I right? Is that a common theme? No, you're right. At least she's played both roles, you know, yeah. the one breaking it up and the one being broken up. The range. The range. The range. Well, this is another movie also I have to mention that has killer end credits. They show hilarious bloopers and they even have the cast addressing the audience. Like, why are you still in the theater? Why are you watching the credits? And it like blew my mind when my young self saw that for the first time because it just felt like such a breaking the fourth wall that my young self hadn't seen before. As you said, they don't do enough fun things in credits anymore. So that movie came out in 2002. And obviously during the next few years, she's cranking out movie after movie. I feel like she was everywhere during this time. Again, this is an episode of Lerv. And so we need to circle back into another relationship in Cameron Diaz's life, a pretty significant one. And this person's name has been in the news a lot recently. You know, you remember Cameron did date Justin Timberlake from 2003 to 2007. Four years is a pretty substantial Hollywood relationship, I would say. I feel like there was a lot of gross like drama and press about it because it was always like she's like this old woman compared. She, you know, she was getting all this like ageist crap, but she looked amazing and it was absolutely ridiculous. But legend has it that Cameron and Justin had their first encounter with one another at the 2003 Kid Choice Awards. So that's just about a year after The Sweetest Thing came out when she presented him with the prize for Best Burp, an award that she herself had claimed just two years prior. It just goes to show one burp really can change everything. I've been saying that for years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we don't know exactly what happened. It was speculated that Justin Timberlake's What Goes Around Comes Around music video, which famously starred Scarlett Johansson, was like a start of a crack in the relationship. Now, Kels, tell me if you remember this drama. One week after Justin and Cameron announced their breakup in January of 2007. It was complete with the flowery PR terms like they have love and respect for one another and they hope to remain friends and cordial, blah, blah, blah. They had kind of a tense standoff at Prince's Golden Globes after party. It was reported that Cam allegedly approached Justin while he was chatting with Jessica Biel at this party which, according to witnesses, led to an intense 40-minute face-off between the two of them in a side room that ended with Justin slamming his fist down on a cabinet. Oh, yes, getting 
fisty and feisty. Fisty. <laughs> like, okay, he slammed his fist down. Like, I don't know. Just a weird, like, thing to report. But now, talk about awkward, but also professionalism. Justin and Cameron were forced to reunite just months after their breakup for the Shrek the Third press tour. I told you, Cam was doing everything, including the kitchen sink during this time. She was part of Shrek. She had the holidays. She had so many other movies going on. But Justin was in Shrek 3 as well. And I will give them credit. They handled that very professionally. You would never be able to tell that there was any drama or bad blood between them. And it gets even more awkward and cringe because four years later, they reunited again and shared a very, very awkward sex scene for the 2011 comedy Bad Teacher. And Cameron's such a gem. She legitimately praised JT when she was interviewed about the movie. She called him, quote, a genius comedian. He's clearly talented. He's so bizarre and hilarious, end quote. Wow. More mature than I would be. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't see that movie, but I didn't put together that they were like literal exes having to be lovers. Like, right. I could not. Right. But did you know after her relationship with Justin, which ended in 2007, Cam dated P. Diddy on and off from 2008 to 2012, which is crazy hearing all these allegations coming out about Diddy now. Like, ugh. But Diddy had previously admitted that Cam was, quote, the one that got away, end quote. And allegedly, when the subject of her dating Benji Madden came up, Diddy is rumored to have said, if I could turn back time, things would be different. And he added, she's the sexiest girl in the world. Why Did can't you- anyone say this shit about me, you know? Right? I mean, but like, she's like, I feel like she's like one in a million, but... During this, totally not that you aren't, excuse oh, me. Yeah, <laughs> Whoa, not that you aren't one in a billion. So she also had a very brief but high profile relationship with New York Yankee at the time, Alex Rodriguez or A Rod from 2010 to 2011. Just like everybody else, A Rod spoke very highly of her after their breakup. He said, quote, I don't like talking about my relationships, but I will tell you about CD, aka Cameron Diaz. She's probably one of the greatest human beings I've ever met in just an amazing light, end quote. Man, we've said it before. We'll say it again. There's something about Cameron. So where is our girl now? Well, she has like totally blossomed into a lifestyle guru. In late 2013, she published her first book, The Body Book. Feed, move, understand, and love your amazing body, which reached number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And then just two years later, she married Good Charlotte's Benji Madden at her home in Beverly Hills, California. They were introduced just 10 months earlier by Nicole Richie, who is married mm-hmm. to Madden's twin brother, Joel. I still just can't believe that she married Benji Madden. Like every time I see paparazzi photos of them, I love it. They seem so happy. And his Instagram posts for her, like make me cry. (laughs) But like, I just didn't have that on my bingo card. In 2016, Annie comes out and this is with Jamie Foxx, Rose Byrne and Cameron played Colleen, Miss Hannigan, you know, the control freak. And she didn't get great reviews. A lot of people praised her effort, which that is kind of like a backhanded compliment, right? Nice try. You try. Yeah. Like, oh, thanks oh. for trying. Um, a lot someone even called her like obnoxious. They said that she like overacted too much. And she decided to take a break from acting after Annie was released. Oh. And um, I think she just became tired of traveling. And she confirmed her retirement in March 2018. Up until then, she was working on books. She had another book come out in 2016, The Longevity Book, The Science of Aging, The Biology of Strength, and The Privilege of Time. I haven't read her books, but I love that she looks her age on the Mm -hmm. covers There are just some celebrities who try to be like, drink warm water with lemon and smear olive oil on your face and you'll look like me. And that's just not true. And I feel like Cameron is much more realistic and truly tries to embrace the aging process and look like 
a person her age. And I say that as somebody who gets Botox, but maybe I wouldn't feel the need to do that in my early 30s if I had more high profile celebs embrace their laugh lines, you know? Yes. So Cameron's taking a break. She's really embracing, you know, her time off. She's doing more of this like wellness lifestyle stuff. And in 2019, she and Benji welcomed a daughter via surrogate. And in 2020, just a year later, she launched an organic wine brand called Aveline. Um, She posts these adorable, cute little recipes on her Instagram. She'll do wine pairings with her wine brand. And she just seems so charming, just like many of her roles would suggest she is. Well, even though she's been retired from acting for many, many years now, literally last week, February 1st, we got more details around the film that's bringing her out of retirement. Back in Action will debut on Netflix later this year, and she is starring alongside Jamie Foxx, who she was in with Annie, her last project. Um, Together, they star as Emily and Matt, a pair of former spies who abandon their careers to start a family together until their cover is blown. It's giving me like Mr. and Mrs. Smith vibes. I controversially really liked that movie, so... I did too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, gave us a lot of juicy gossip turning up So Cameron's coming back. Oh my gosh. Can't wait to watch and review. Review. Speaking of review. Oh, well, we love you. And some of you guys seem to love us. And we really appreciate <laughs> that. It really like makes our day. We take screenshots. We send them to our moms, our boyfriends, our husbands, whatever. So We have two new reviews to read, and so we're going to split them up because each of you deserves an episode for your review. And the first one we got is from Starly, and Starly says, A plus pod, Y2K nostalgia at its best. Every episode is like being swaddled and comforted in my millennial childhood teenage faves. I especially like all the music clips integrated and being Delulu pretending Kelsey and Mary are my two besties gabbing it up. Maybe we plan a popped meetup at the Lovers and Friends concert. A necessary research business expense write-off, huh? Thank you for doing the Lord's work. Brava, ladies. Oh, my God. First of all, Starly, thank you so much. It takes so long to do the music clips. So I appreciate your acknowledgement of that. We definitely need to do a When They Popped meetup business trip. I don't <laughs> Wherever that will be. I agree. It's a necessary expense. Yes. And thank you so much for taking the time to write the kind words. It means so much to us. It helps us in the podcast rankings, what have you. And we're kicking ass and taking names this year, guys. So any help you can give us with just giving us five stars or leaving a review, it just goes so far. So thank you. Thank you guys for listening. We love you. We appreciate you. We hope you have a wonderful Valentine's Day, Galentine's Day. Yes. It's a season of love. Even if you aren't in a romantic relationship, look around because love really is all around. Whatever they say in love, actually. And we love you. If anything, we love you. Yeah, so. we'll be your Valentine's. Yes, but thanks for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs>